0: In case it's been a little bit, in case you can't remember where we started, what we've been through, just to jog your memory a little bit, some of the things that we've gone through in the series on worship that we did, a lot of what we did honestly was asking questions, wasn't it? We were asking questions like, what is worship anyway? How do we define worship? How do we think about worship? We asked questions like, who can worship? Can only Christians worship? Can only Baptists worship? Who can worship? We talked about different different kinds of worship that we see commended to us in Scripture, like personal or private worship, something you might do as an act of worship yourself, like reading the Scriptures or prayer. We talked about family worship, where you're not reading the Scriptures and praying by yourself, but you're, you're doing it together as a family. We see that commended in the Scriptures, but we also talked about corporate worship, what we do together as a church family. And that's where we've spent most of our time in this series on worship is corporate worship and everything that, that's wrapped up into that. So we've talked about preaching. We've talked about singing. We talked about the ordinances of baptism and what we get to celebrate today, as you can see, the Lord's Supper. We get to celebrate that together today. We've talked about all those different things. We've talked about giving even and how that's part of our worship as a church. So what's left? What's left for us to talk about? What I'm going to try to do today, my attempt is going to be to try and create a connection in your mind between worship and missions. That's what I want to try to do, is to create a connection in your mind between worship and missions. Why would I want to do that? Most people recognize that worship and missions are two things that a church does yes but they're disconnected from one another or if they are connected it's at least very loose they think okay a church they have missions that they do especially a church like monroe missionary baptist church we have a mission team that's been put together we we tend to think about missions as a committee a group of people that meets together and plans events uh, organizes partnerships that exist determines what to do with the budget that the church members have have brought to be used for the purpose of the preaching of the gospel throughout the world we we think okay yeah that's that's part of what a church does that's missions but we also think of worship as something yeah that a church does that too you've got things like a band you've got music whether it be on the screen or in hymnals you got the band or you got the choir Uh, Hopefully, at least something that you've learned in this series that we've done is that worship is far more than those things. But we tend to compartmentalize these things in the life of the church. Yeah, a church does missions. Yeah, a church worships. But what do those have to do together? How do those two things impact one another? A phrase that's been really helpful to me as I've been preparing for this sermon for several months That I came across uh, was said by a now retired pastor his name is John Piper the way he puts it is he says that worship is both the fuel and the goal of missions worship is both the fuel and the goal of missions worship is the fuel it's the thing that makes it go it's what makes it work without worship there would be no missions Because there would be nothing to drive it. But at the same time, worship is the goal of missions. In this sense, if you're on a journey, worship is the destination. It's the end result that you want to see. Of all the activity that we do as a church, all of the efforts that we put into missions, whether that be local or whether that be national or international, if the end result of what we've done as a church of what we have put together and what we've organized as a church if the end result of that is not more worship and an increased number of worshipers we have yet to do missions the end goal has not been completed i want to try to create that connection in your mind today and i can talk about it all i want but i want to show it to you from the scriptures so if you would turn to psalm 96 if you haven't already in psalm 96 we're going to walk through this, and I, I hope to show you this connection between our church's worship and our church's call to missions. But psalm 96 is an almost identical psalm to uh, what we see uh, as a song that David leads in First Chronicles chapters 15 and 16. Uh, this was a momentous event in the life of Israel. When the Ark of the Covenant, you've heard of the Ark of the Covenant, it would be in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, right? They, they put in the, the, top, the copy of the Ten Commandments, they put in Aaron's staff, they put in some manna. It, would, it represented, in, to a sense, the presence of God among His people, right? It's where, sacri- you know, the blood of the sacrifices would be brought in and sprinkled on the mercy seat that sat on top of the Ark. The Ark was a big deal. And this is the first time the ark is being brought into the city of jerusalem the presence of god with the people of god they tried it before this and you might remember the story of uzzah when he reached up to steady the ark because it was it was teetering and what happened to him he died they were irreverent in the way they treated the ark they didn't follow god's commands they touched it but here they're going to try again a couple months later they're bringing the ark into Jerusalem and this is one of the most climactic events of Israel's history and I don't have time to go through the events of first Chronicles 15 and 16 but I encourage you to go read that on your own maybe at some point today or this week if you find the time but what you see in Israel in Jerusalem is absolute pandemonium excitement joy gladness The account there lists that there is singing, there's shouting, there's even dancing happening in the streets. Believe it or not, there's dancing. But you see all this joy, all this happiness, instruments are being played. There's even feasting that happens. At one point in the passage, it says it seems like as if all of Israel is present for this. It makes it seem like, minus the sin and and the the fallenness of it, it almost seems like it's like a, a Jerusalem Mardi Gras. Or uh, a Rios festival that they have. What's that called? Carnival that they have. Makes it seem like this crazy party that's going on of celebration and of worship. And it's all because the ark is being brought back in to the city of Jerusalem. God's presence finally with his people. And there's a king, David, on the throne as there should be. A man after God's own heart. And all of this celebration culminates in Psalm 96. And so let's see what they did. Let's see what they said. Let's see how they worshiped here. The first couple verses, what we see is very clearly a command to sing. A command to sing. Look at verses one and two. It says, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. It's almost as if the only right response, the only response that all Israel could help to do was to sing. Sometimes when you are overcome with a sense of joy and gladness that all things have been set right, you just feel like singing. Have you ever been in your car and just been so happy that something has happened and you just can't think of anything better to do than turn on the radio and jam out and just sing to yourself. You don't care what other people think when they're looking in, right? You just want to sing. And that's what we're commanded to do here. Sing. Three times, he says. Sing. And each time that we see we're commanded to sing, we learn something new about what that singing is to be like. We see that uh, we're told what the object of our praise is to be. We're also told what it is we should sing. And we also see who it is that should be singing. Just in this first verse and a half. We're told the object of our praise. Oh, sing to the Lord. Oh, sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Bless whose name? Bless His name. Recognize what He has done and make sure you recognize it back to Him. The Lord is the only object of our praise. He's the one we're singing about. He's the one we're praising. It's Him that brings us the joy that is bubbling to the surface in song, in joy and in gladness. We we don't just see the object of our praise, we see what it is that we are commanded to sing. It says in the very first verse, oh, sing to the Lord a new song, a new song. We should never come to the point where we believe that the songs available to the church to sing the praise of God are sufficient. They're never sufficient. Let me give you an example of a guy that lived a a while back. He's dead now. His name is Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley is recorded as as having written over 6,000 hymns. 6,000. That's a lot. Count the number of hymns in the hymn book in the pew, and you'll see maybe we need a few more pews to have 6,000 hymns. But I wonder, what is it that led him to believe that he needed to write even more after he got to 1,000? After he got to 3,000? After he got to 5,000? Why keep writing? Surely 1,000 is enough. Will you ever be able to remember and to know 1,000 hymns? 3,000 or 5,000? All the way to 6,000? What would possibly possess a person to continue writing Songs of praise to the Lord. What would lead them to do that? Well, if the glory of God is infinite, there will always be space in the church's hymn book for a new song to praise Him. If God's glory is infinite, surely our praise will never be enough. Ten songs, not enough. Twenty songs, not enough. Five hundred, not enough. Six thousand, not enough. Our God is much more worthy of that. His glory is greater than 6,000 hymns, than 200. His glory is greater than that. But even then, it's not even this, this. the command to sing a new song is not necessarily even on the number of songs. It's not a command to us as a church that, listen, every time you come to church, the songs that we sing should all be new. They all need to be new. Pastor Dave, you have to start writing songs every week. Have fun. Good luck. Right? That's not necessarily what it's even talking about. It's it's more about the attitude of the ones who are singing, the disposition of the ones who are singing. In Lamentations chapter three, verse 23, it says that the mercies of God are new every morning. Does that mean that God's mercies are different every morning? Something fundamentally has changed about the mercies of God every morning? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that they're fresh. It means that they're not stale. means that they're given to you anew. And it's in the same way, if God's mercy and God's grace is given fresh to you every morning, you have a new, fresh reason to continue worshiping God each and every day. It never gets stale. It never gets old. The motivation is always there because your God is gracious to you. And he wasn't just gracious yesterday. He's not just gracious today. He will be gracious tomorrow. And he will be just as worthy of your praise tomorrow as he is today. So we're seeing what we're to sing. We also see who it is that should sing. And this one is kind of surprising. Sing to the Lord all the earth. This is, the ark is coming into Jerusalem. This is Israel. This is David leading in this song for the people of God. It would maybe make more sense to hear him say, Sing to the Lord all Israel or sing to the Lord all Jerusalem. Instead, no, he calls all the earth. This isn't just news for Israel. This isn't just news for Jerusalem. This isn't just news for the Old Testament people of God in that sense. This is news for the whole earth. This is a consistent theme you're gonna see through the whole Psalm. This isn't directed, these commands aren't directed to just a small group of people. It is directed to everyone, families of the nations, All peoples you'll see it over and over again and it's the clue to us that yes even though Psalm 96 is rooted historically in a real event that happened recorded in 1st Chronicles chapter 16 what we see is that what David has in mind as he's going through this as he's singing the song is something greater than the ark coming into Jerusalem he has something greater in mind the whole earth is called to sing to the Lord, to praise the Lord. But for them to sing, they must know the Lord they're singing to. We read it earlier in Sunday school and uh, in the MMBC Explored class downstairs from Romans chapter 10. How are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? They must be told of who God is if they are to sing to him. And we see that in the very next verse. The second half of verse 2 says, Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all of the peoples. So again, you see, it's all the peoples. It's everyone. This isn't just for us as a church. It's all peoples. What you see in these verses, in this verse and a half I just read, you actually see the same thing described three different ways. The same thing described three different ways. It says that we are to tell of his salvation, we are to declare his glory, and we are also to declare his marvelous works. I would just submit to you, all of those are the same thing. You're saying the same thing in three different ways. What is the marvelous work of God but the salvation that he has accomplished for sinners through his son, Jesus Christ, which we know according to Hebrews chapter one, verse three, it says that Jesus is the radiance of what? The glory of God. And he's the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So don't you see that to declare the glory of God throughout all the earth is to declare the work that he has accomplished Through his son, Jesus Christ, which accomplishes salvation for sinners like you and like me. That's what we're called to declare. We're called, we're commanded to declare the glory of God among the nations, which is his work that he's completed through Jesus Christ for salvation. Now the question is why? Why would the nations be called to praise the one God? Why would that be the right response for them after hearing of his marvelous work and all that he's done? We see that in verses four and six, four through six. Verse four, we sang this this morning, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods for all the gods of the peoples are what? Worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. We read that this morning. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty in his sanctuary. You see, the greatness, the power, the beauty of God exposes the absolute worthlessness of anything else that we could worship, of anything else that anyone ever could worship in comparison to the one true God, every other God that man could worship is exposed as a cheap imitation it is not worthy of the worship the way our God is. In preparing for this sermon, I originally intended uh, to preach from uh, Acts chapter 17, uh, which is a, uh, an, an account of Paul going to the city of Athens. He finds himself there, and he's walking through the whole city, and he sees that it's full of idols. As I was preparing for that sermon, I came across Psalm 96, decided to change gears, But I could not help but notice, after studying both of these chapters in depth, that there's almost a parallel between the account of Paul in Athens, interacting with those Gentiles, and the layout that we see of Psalm 96. If you want something to do as a devotion later this week, I challenge you, read Psalm 96, read Acts 17, and find ways that they parallel one another. You'll be amazed. Um, But I noticed that, and so I switched gears But what we see in Acts chapter 17, verse 16, this is the beginning of that account with Paul. It says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. His spirit was provoked within him. At one time, Athens was thought to have more gods in it than people in it. There, there were shrines and there were statues and idols that peppered the streets. They were everywhere. If you were to continue reading in Acts 17, you would see that there are even shrines erected to the unknown God. Because they were so afraid of forgetting to rightly worship one of the gods that that God that was unknown to them would be angered and would do something to them. So they said, well, let's just have a catch-all. For all of the gods that we maybe haven't recognized, that we haven't forgotten, or that we don't know about. They were very religious people. The problem is, that's not how God has called them to worship him. It's not how God calls us to worship. But all of that idolatry, as Paul walked through the city and saw idol after idol after idol being revered, being worshipped, being loved, except for the one true God. It had an effect on him. It says that his spirit was provoked within him. That word they're provoked, is the same word that is used of the way God feels in the Old Testament about idol worship. He is angered. He becomes jealous. He pronounces judgment on those who worship idols as opposed to him. Paul's message to them as he was interacting with them, was very clear. You are to turn from worshiping these idols. These idols are the creation of your hands. As it says here in our psalm, they are worthless idols. But who does he call them to worship? He calls them to worship the one true God. And what does he tell them about the one true God? He tells them that this is the God who created the heavens and the earth, just like Psalm 96 says. In verse 5 for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols but the lord made the heavens he is the one who's created all things he is the one who is worthy of our worship And paul was so provoked within him that it moved him to action it moved him to tell them about who the one true god was i wonder how often we are provoked by the idolatry that we see all around us every day in our lives I wonder how often it moves us to action to see people all around worship everything but God, to worship self, to worship money, to worship influence, to worship entertainment, to worship sex, to worship sports, to worship anything else that it could be except God, the one true God, the one who created the heavens how often do we see that in our lives and our spirits go unprovoked and it doesn't bother you you don't think about it the idolatry of this world should provoke our spirits because we see everyone worshiping everything under heaven except the one thing that actually deserves their worship it should provoke us and it should motivate us to disgust. Have you ever been to a city or an area of of a certain town where it seems like everything in that area of town is dedicated to the worship of something that is sinful? Have you ever been there? Have you ever seen that? Have you ever walked through that? For me, it was Las Vegas. I've been to Las Vegas one time. I have no desire to go back. Everything seems to be geared towards a couple of different things, and Christians simply can't enjoy those things, not in the way they do not in the way that it's worshiped there. We should be disgusted by those things, provoked. But at the same time, we often stop short because I actually think it probably is very often that we go throughout this world and we're able to observe people and places and cities and towns where sinful things are lifted up and they're worshiped. And yeah, you're provoked to the sense that you're disgusted, but are you provoked to a sense of action? Are you provoked by a desire to see those people not only stop worshiping those things that will lead them to destruction, but also begin to worship the one true God that will lead to their salvation? Have you been provoked in that way as well? When you have a God that is as great and as glorious and wonderful to us and in our eyes, along with that sense of glory and greatness comes a desire for everyone else around you to see it too. That's what you want. For those of you that are here that would approach the idea of missions or evangelism with a sense of apathy and don't really mind what other people are doing with their lives, I don't so much wonder about what you think about missions and evangelism in that sense what i do wonder though is what do you think of god is your god not worthy of their worship is your god not worthy of their praise is your praise enough for him that's not the god of the scriptures all the earth is called to worship and called to praise him what are we actually doing When we're calling the people of this world to sing to the one true god to worship the one true god we see what we're actually calling them to do is recorded for us in verses seven through nine let's look there it said ascribe to the lord o families of the peoples ascribe to the lord glory and strength ascribe to the lord the glory do his name bring an offering and come into his courts worship the lord in the splendor of holiness tremble before him All the earth what we are doing in any kind of evangelism or missions work what we are doing is actually calling the peoples of this earth to stop worshiping those things and to begin worshiping this thing stop worshiping your idols start worshiping the one true God begin to recognize him for who he is That's what this word ascribe means, ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord, glory and strength, glory to His name, bring an offering into His courts, recognize Him for who He is. That's what missions is, that's what preaching is, recognize God for who He is. That's exactly what Paul called these Athenians to do when he was preaching to them. In Acts 17, 29-30, here's what he says, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Don't worship those things. What does he say? The times of ignorance, God overlooked. But now, he commands all people everywhere to repent. Well, repent of what? Repent from worshiping those things and start worshiping him. That's what he's called you to do. He commands all men everywhere to repent. Something you gotta understand when it comes to the connection between worship and missions is that calling men to repent of their sin is the same thing as calling them to begin worshiping the Lord. It's the same thing. Worship is the goal of missions. It's what we want to see happen. We are calling the world to begin honoring God as they should, because He is their God. But we also have to be careful with these verses. As we look at these, some of your translations might say give, in verses 7 through 9, give to the Lord. Mine says ascribe. We have to be careful with these words because we have to remember, you can never add to or subtract from the glory of God. The glory of God is what it is. It doesn't change based on how many people are in the sanctuary or in church on Sunday morning. It doesn't change. The glory of God always is what it is. However, what we can do and what we're calling the nations to do is to recognize the glory that God has and to praise Him for that glory. We read this morning from Isaiah chapter 6, what we can do is we can look at the Lord in the splendor of holiness and shout back to him as the seraphim did in Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy. But you recognizing that about God does not, is not what makes him holy. It is simply a recognition of what's already there. He is holy. He is glorious. He is wonderful. Whether you recognize it or not but how good for you to see it. How right for you to worship the one who is good, the one who is holy. His position as God does not change based on how many people recognize him as God. But that goes into what we're commanded to tell people about God, that he actually is the king. He actually is their Lord. Look at verse 10 of Psalm 96. It says, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Whether you recognize this or not, whether you already worship God as he is or you worship something else, who is it that reigns? The Lord reigns. And that's what you need to see. That's what you have to understand. That's what you have to believe. See, the irony of many of our gospel presentations that maybe you would give to a friend or a family member of yours would encourage that lost person to make Jesus, what, the Lord of their life. Maybe you've said that before. Well, the ironic thing about that is that Jesus already is the Lord of their life. They don't have to recognize that for it to be true. Now, I completely understand what you're saying to people when you tell them that, and I wouldn't discourage you from telling them that and encouraging them to trust in Christ, put their faith in Him, That's something we have to understand. We're not calling them to change something about God. What we're calling them to do is to change how they are relating to God, to see Him for who He is in their life. That's the message that we're proclaiming to the world as a church and as individuals. It is the Lord who reigns. He is on the throne. His kingdom is established. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9 says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus is the king of all, he is on the throne. He reigns over a kingdom that is established and it will never be moved. Why would that be our message to the world? A message about a king and a throne and a kingdom. Why would that be our message? Why would that lead people to worship? Why would that lead people to praise? Because it's good news. It's good news that we have a king. It's good news that he's on the throne. And it's good news that he will come as a judge. Look at verses 11 through 13. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all that fills it, let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Why is the proper news, or why is the proper response to that news that God is the judge and He is coming to judge the world? Why is that good news? Why is that meant to lead to the kind of rejoicing that we see is described here of all of the earth? Normally we don't think of the news of a coming judge to be good for us we normally think of it as "Uh uh-oh not good it's normally the way it's preached too but here we see it's actually good news that is meant to bring joy to all of creation why well it's because of the quality of this judge's judgments the quality of his judgments verse 10 says that this judge will judge with equity Verse 13 says that he will judge in righteousness and in his faithfulness. The quality of this judge's judgments are altogether righteous and good, and that should make you rejoice. Let me give you an example of what I mean by this. In 1 Kings chapter 10, there's an account of the queen of Sheba who comes up from the south because she's heard of the famed wisdom of Solomon and she wants to know if this is true. So she comes, she brings gifts with her, she brings all kinds of things, and she comes before Solomon, testing his wisdom, hearing his wisdom from him, and she finds that the rumors were true. This man really is wise as a gift from the Lord. He really is wise. Now when she finds out that the rumors are true, listen to what her response is to that news. Uh, this is from 1 Kings chapter 10, verses eight through nine. She says, Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who is delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. What's the response of somebody who gets to sit in the court of Solomon and listen to the wisdom and to the justice and the righteousness and the equity with which he reigns the kingdom God has set him over? Happiness, joy, gladness. How many problems exist in our world because the people in charge make the wrong choices? How many wars have been started How many economies have been ruined by bad leaders, sinful leaders, unjust men and women? How many times have you personally been hurt by those in your life who are supposed to lead you, who are supposed to protect you, who are supposed to love you and to care for you? But how many times have those people actually hurt you? How many times have you been wronged by a boss or a manager? or an executive in the company that you work for? Or maybe, how many times have you found yourself in a place of authority over someone else, whether it's at work or at home? How many times as you, as a manager of other people, have made bad choices, made the wrong call, and it led to suffering for people? How many times have you failed to be the parent that you know you should be? How many times have you failed to be the husband that you know God has called you to be? Well, there is good news for you today if you failed at that. It's verse 10, the Lord reigns. The Lord is king and his kingdom is established and it will never be moved. The Lord reigns and that is great news for you. The king is on his throne and he reigns in glory in majesty, and he reigns over his creation in holiness with perfect justice and righteousness and equity. That is the message that we have to give to the world, and it's good news for them. That's what Paul told these Athenians at the end of his discussion and, and sermon, really, that he gave to them. He was a herald of the kingdom because of the news that there was a righteous, holy God that sat on the throne, and calling all to submit to his rule. That's a joy to those who have joyfully submitted to him. But to those who are living in rebellion against that king, it doesn't mean that he's not the king. It just means that they're not on his side. And so the news that this psalm here tells us, verse 13, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth, that is news of terror and fear. When Paul shared this news with the Athenians, he wasn't sharing it in a sense of that if this is good news. It was bad news for them because they were not worshiping the one true God. He says in verse 30 and 31, the times of ignorance God overlooked but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul expands on Psalm 96, doesn't he? He doesn't just say that God will come as a judge. He says God's appointed a man to do this, and we know who that man is because he's risen from the dead. That man is Jesus Christ. He is the Savior. He is the King. He is the judge, and he is coming. My question to you now is, Does the news that there is a coming judge strike joy into your heart or fear? Does the news that one day Jesus will come and set all things right, all of the problems, all of the issues, all of the sin around you and in your life that jacks your life up, does that cause joy in your heart to know he's going to come and fix it all? Or does it strike terror into your heart? to know that you're one of the things he's going to be setting right. Which is your response? Because the same news can either bring joy or fear. Joy because we gladly submit to this king and his rule and his justice or fear because we are fleeing that and trying to get away from him constantly. That's the message we have to give the world. That's what we want them to see. That's what we want them to know. And we want them to respond as they should in worship to our God. The worship of our church is not complete unless we are calling the nations and our neighbors to join us in the worship of God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, God we, Lord I I can't change anyone's heart this morning. I cannot make them see you as they should. Whether it's ourselves here together worshiping you as the Lord, or it's our calling all those around us to come to believe in you, to trust in you as they should. Lord, I I can't make that happen, you can though. Lord, my prayer this morning is not that we would have a renewed love and emphasis for missions or for evangelism, as much as I love those things. Lord, my prayer is that you would spark a love for God in our hearts that we would see you as we should, reigning in majesty and splendor and beauty and strength. Father, that the the verses we read this morning from Isaiah 6 would ring in our minds all day of the temple filled with glory and smoke and your train of your robe filling the temple. And God, that you would become so great and so glorious to us that we cannot help but to be provoked to action, to tell the world of this great God that does reign, and that it will lead to their joy to recognize that reign and to submit to that reign. Father, would you let our worship lead to what it should, to mission, would you help us with that, Lord? We pray these things